0: Hey there everyone, Rick Cole here, and you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We come to you each week from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, bringing you all the big news stories in the hockey and sporting worlds from 50 years ago this week. This time around, we have the week of April 13th to 19th, 1970. Very eventful week it was, both in hockey and in the world in general, as you'll see. Our podcast each week is made possible by the support of our two sponsors, as we always like to mention, newspapers.com. That's the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support has allowed us to get into all the news stories from 50 years ago, and we can't thank them enough for their help. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, which is located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. Now, during these troubled times that we're experiencing right now, the Breakwall isn't open, as are no uh, pubs, restaurants these days, but they continue to put out some fine craft beer. They're open for takeout, and when they do get everything back underway again full speed, we'll have to meet sometime for a beer and a burger at the Breakwall. In last week's uh, show some of the stories we talked about were the nhl in amid widespread complaining of their tie-breaking process to determine who would uh, occupy a higher spot in the standings when teams had the same record uh, the governors were looking at rule changes to better determine how to solve this problem but we learned that that problem won't be solved until at least june at the nhl meetings we learned that Stan- Sam Pollock discussed what had been the unthinkable, the Canadians missing the playoffs, and we kind of learned that Sam has a plan. And, of course, we talked about the first few games of the Stanley Cup playoffs. This week, we have a few other items to bring along with the... uh playoff series that are going on we'll learn the outcome of that Bruins Rangers series and how it had become a real war and we'll also see how the North Stars and Blues finally resolved their series we found that some uh, injuries were hitting the NHL officiating staff we have all the details on that and we learn about the Red Wings hiring a new coach a man with no professional hockey experience at all. That ought to be interesting. And of course, we have all the rest of the hockey news this week. Again, a lot to get to, so let's get to it. So as the week began, as we usually start with on Mondays, the teams were resting. But the first item that came across the news wires had to do with National Hockey League officials instead of the players or the teams it seemed that two very senior NHL referees might be out with injuries or illnesses, possibly for the rest of the playoffs. Vern Buffy, who's number one on the NHL referees seniority list, was going got the news he was going to be forced to miss at least the rest of the stanley cup playoffs and there was a strong possibility that verne was going to have to retire from hockey now verne as uh, the news came out on monday was in the coronary care unit of ramsey hospital in st paul minnesota but national hockey league officials would not say that Buffy had had a heart attack. In fact, National Hockey League referee-in-chief Scotty Morrison said Vern's through for the year, definitely, there's no doubt about that. There's sufficient reason for some concern, but we don't know the nature of his illness. Morrison went on to say that Buffy would stay in hospital for at least the next three days and the doctors had told them that they would conduct every possible test they can because of his occupation as a National Hockey League official. Morrison went on to say that there had at this point been no final diagnosis and for all they knew the problem could be gastritis. Well, as time went on during the week, it seemed more apparent that Verne was suffering from some sort of heart ailment, but no one would come out and say that he had had a heart attack. More tests were being conducted as the week came to an end, but we would learn in the near future just what would happen to Vern Buffy and his career. Now another NHL referee, Art Scove, had been bothered for the last few weeks by a persistent pain in his side. He finally had a doctor look at it within uh, the last few days over the weekend, and he discovered that the discomfort is a result of a broken rib. But Scove looked on this more of a nuisance than a disabling type of injury, and he informed Scotty Morrison that he intends to carry on with his scheduled duties. Nonetheless the league was worried about a shortage of officials but the load was reduced significantly when two of the playoff series ended in four straight games. Even at that both Bill Friday and John Ashley have both had their workload increased to take up the slack left by Vern Buffy. Now the league has another uh worry about their officials uh, A very important consideration is the safety of NHL linesmen. Now, everybody knows the linesmen don't call penalties. They usually just determine offsides and other minor infractions like that. But another job that the linesmen have that's very important is they break up the fights. Referees do not get involved in the fisticuffs at all. And it's up to the two linesmen in the game to uh, disable, if it so to speak, the combatants. Neutralize the combatants is probably a better word. Well, it seems that fighting is on the rise in the NHL. And it in this New York-Boston series, it's in progress. It's getting more vicious as well. It, the players, when they start into these fights now, it's almost a take no prisoners type of attitude and they're really trying to hurt each other. Well, the problem is the linesmen, when they're required to break up all these scuffles, they're getting hurt. Now, a lot of it right now are minor injuries, but there's been a couple times where some very serious injury has been narrowly averted. There's talk that some linesmen might even be considering requesting danger pay when they negotiate their contracts this summer. National Hockey League Vice President Brian O'Neill says that that hasn't happened as of yet. It's just one of the hazards of the business and he doesn't think the league would give the linesmen danger pay. He did say the NHL has instructed those men to simply let the combatants slug it out on their own if they both seem determined to conduct the fight. As the week began, four games had been completed in the Rangers-Boston series, the Eastern Semifinal. And the teams were tied at two games apiece And that was uh, quite surprising When you realize it in that very first game The Bruins nearly ran the Rangers Out of the rank by an 8-2 score Now Derek Sanderson of the Bruins And he's not shy, never met a microphone he didn't like. Uh, He told reporters that the Rangers had better beware when they returned to Boston for Game 5. If you remember, while they were in Madison Square Garden, the Rangers ran at any Bruins sweater that moved, and they took liberties with their sticks as well. Sanderson's quote to reporters was simple and direct. They'll get it when they come to Boston. Now there's no word if the NHL is having a special look at any of the extracurricular activities taking place in this series. While the brawls have been numerous and very intense, it stands to get even worse as the hate between these two clubs is festering with each slash and body check that takes place. NHL President Clarence Campbell says he isn't going to conduct any type of investigation into the violence that has erupted so far in this series. We'll see what happens as time goes on. Now Sanderson also claimed that Rangers goalie Eddie Jockerman told him that the New York team and New York players I should say were being paid to quote get him and that they would do so quite happily. Rangers general manager coach Emil Francis denied that he placed a bounty on the Boston Center's head, saying that Sanderson has a case of diarrhea of the mouth. But as it turns out, Francis really wasn't concerned with uh, Sanderson's dirty play. Uh, He didn't name Sanderson as one of the Bruins who are cheap shot artists, who he accused three members of the Boston Club of being. Francis said that Sanderson and call up defenseman Bill Spear, who had been rocking several of the Rangers with really heavy body checks, were hitting players up front and were not doing it from behind. In other words, they were doing it pretty cleanly. Emil says that the only Boston guys who hit from behind, and thus are the cheap shot artists, are Wayne Cashman, Don Marcotte, and the injured Ace Bailey. Francis is quite sure that after coming back from down two games to even up the series, the Rangers now have momentum on their side and he feels the pressure is all in Boston. One thing was abundantly clear after the first four games of that series, the Rangers, thought to be very soft by most of the Boston players, will not be intimidated by the big bad Bruins. But it'll still boil down to this. New York has to win one game in Boston Garden and they know that game five is pretty well the one that they have to take. The other series that's still going on is the uh, battle between the St. Louis Blues and the Minnesota North Stars in the Western Division semifinal and the fact that hadn't been settled before now was somewhat of a surprise. Each team had won two games, just like the Boston Rangers series, and they both won at home, although the Blues had been heavily favored to take the series in four straight, but the North Stars have been surprisingly resilient in this series. Minnesota's getting scoring from the guys who are supposed to lead their offense and of course that helps but what's been really getting the job done for Minnesota is their goalkeeping and that's Gump Worsley and Cesar Maniego. North Stars coach Charlie Burns has been alternating the two every game and that system seems to be benefiting the team and both men who are wearing the pads. Another player being given credit for the Stars' good showing against St. Louis is an unheralded fellow by the name of Tom Polonic, who has arrived from the Central Hockey League as an injury replacement. Leo Boyvan was hurt in Game 2, so the North Stars summoned uh, Polonic from their Iowa farm team, and he immediately took on the role of team policeman. When the Blues tried their trusted intimidation tactics on the Stars in Game 3, Polonic was there to step in, and the Blues' tough guys seemed to back off quite a bit. Polonic even chipped in a goal in Game 3. And here's the real shocker of the whole thing. When the Stars evened up the series at two games apiece on Sunday evening in Minnesota, the St. Louis club even looked a little meek especially when Polonic was on the ice and the stars gave full credit to Tom Polonic for that but it'll be a different story one would think when they get back to the friendly confines of the St. Louis arena and that's where the Blues will regain a lot of their courage I'm sure we'll see. So Tuesday night arrived with much anticipation in both Boston and St. Louis and the home teams on this evening did not disappoint. The Bruins edged the Rangers 3-2 while the Blues encountered very little difficulty in dumping the North Stars by a 6-3 score. At St. Louis the Blues were dominant as both teams stuck to hockey in this one. They outshot shot the North Stars by a margin of 37-21, to 21, and that's as good an indicator of any on how the play went that night. Six St. Louis players shared in the scoring before a crowd of 17,208. St. Louis goal-getters were Timmy Ecclestone, Larry Keenan, Gary Sabron, Terry Gray, Jim Roberts, and, of course, Captain Red Berenson. Jean-Paul Parisi had two first period markers that actually had given the North Stars a 2-1 lead at the end of the first period, but then the Blues seemed to find their legs and it was all downhill from Minnesota from there. North Stars coach Charlie Burns was not happy and he blasted his team for quitting after a first period in which they were in total control. Charlie said, we stopped skating, it's cut and dried hockey's a game you skate in and if you don't skate well you don't win there was only one club playing in the last two periods and it was them in boston that game was nothing like the blues stars contests which was a fairly wide open affair with a lot of offense especially on the st louis end of things the boston new york game was a tight rough stifling match with the outcome never assured until the final whistle. Phil Esposito was the hero for Boston. The big lumbering center wears number seven, scored twice in the final frame to overcome a 2-1 Ranger lead and give the Bruins the lead in the series three games to two. Now it was evident in this game it was going to be a bloodbath right from the start, And it lived up to the billing. After only 27 seconds of play, Boston's Rick Smith squared off with the Rangers' Walter Kachuk. And they traded punches at a very brisk pace. And suddenly, Derek Sanderson, wanting to come through on his threats that the Rangers would get it, joined in as well just to make things fair, at least fair as Derek Sanderson considers. All three of the players received major penalties, giving the Rangers a five-minute man advantage. But it was the Bruins who drew first blood when Bobby Orr gave Boston the lead at 2:44. but while the Bruins were still shorthanded, with the major to Sanderson at 5:18. Rookie Jack Eager scored his third playoff goal to even things up at one apiece. About 10 minutes later, the second fight of the period broke out when former Toronto teammates Wayne Carlton of the Bruins and the Rangers Tim Horton squared off. They were each given five-minute sentences as well and Carlton reported that he had very sore ribs from a bear hug applied by the massively strong Tim Hortons. Those penalties, by the way, shattered the Stanley Cup record for penalty minutes in a series Totaled by both teams. Orland Curtainback put the Rangers up by a score of two to one, just shy of the midway point of the sandwich session, and that's how it stayed, setting the stage for Phil Esposito's third period heroics. The teams basically stuck to hockey after that manic opening frame and the expected riot that all on hand figured would erupt before the end of the game never did happen. It seemed that when Phil Esposito took a five-minute major for high sticking in the second period, both teams came to realize that in a game this tight, penalties could be the deciding factor. The Rangers lucky to escape Esposito's five-minute major with very little damage. Now that major, by the way, came when Espo accidentally clipped Rangers center Jean Rattel on the forehead with a stick. The blow opened up uh, Rattel for five stitches and he bled a profuse amount all over the ice but the injury was none of the debilitating type although Rattel did not play well again in the series probably because of this injury. Ranger coach Emil Francis even pulled goalie Eddie Jockerman after Esposito's second goal in the third period and he replaced him with Terry Sachuk. but that move was obviously a ploy to interrupt any momentum that the Bruins were feeling at that point as Eddie Jochman returned to the Ranger goal just 17 seconds later and the move probably worked because the Bruins did not increase their lead the score final was 3-2 to two, but the Rangers were unable to crack the Boston defense and the fine work of Jerry Cheevers preserved the victory for the Bruins and the 3-2 lead in the series. So the teams had a day of rest before heading back to New York and Minnesota for Game 6 in each series. Rangers got some welcome good news on their rest day, and that was that left winger Vic Hadfield, who hadn't played in the series due to a strained Achilles tendon, was skating well enough to get back in the lineup and he would assume his customary position on the goal a game line with Jean Rattel and Rod Gilbert. The North Stars took advantage of their time off on the uh, rest day to confirm that Cesar Maniego would be in goal for them in their sixth game at home against the Blues. But Minnesota got some bad injury news as they go into that match. Defenseman Lou Nanny, who'd been a stalwart throughout the series, has been lost probably for the rest of the playoffs with a broken right thumb. Luckily for the North Stars, Leo Boyvens' injury seems to have gotten a lot better and he's going to take nanny spot. So on Thursday evening amid much anticipation the two game sixes were played in New York and Minnesota and hockey fans who were hoping for that most exciting event in all of hockey playoff game seven they were destined to be disappointed on that night as the Bruins and Blues both eliminated their competition with fairly convincing wins on the road. The Rangers went out with barely a whimper at home bowing to the Bruins by a 4-1 score while the North Stars made it slightly closer in Bloomington but still lost in game six coming out on the short end of a 4-2 count. At Madison Square Garden in New York there was a lot of anticipation that the Riot Squad might need to be called out to quell any insurrection that might occur if the Rangers were trailing as the game wound down. But such was not to be the case. The team stuck to playing hockey, amazingly enough, and the Bruins were simply the better team. Bobby Orr scored twice, and that's all Boston needed to oust the Rangers by the 4 1 score. Bruins general manager Milt Schmidt said his team was so worked up before the game that when he went into the dressing room to deliver the customary pep talk, he quickly determined that they didn't need a pep talk. They were far more ready for the match than anything he could do to uh, increase the spirit. And ready they were. Even though the Rangers held a 1 0 lead at the end of 20 minutes, Jerry Cheevers, fine goalkeeping, kept the score close and you always had the feeling that the Bruins were one shot away from breaking it open. The Rangers pretty much shot their bolt in the opening frame as they outshot Boston 12-5 to but Cheevers looked like he had risen to another level in this game and he allowed only the one goal. The Bruins finally came to life in a big way early in the middle stanza when Orr scored at the 248 mark to tie it up and just over two minutes later Wayne Cashman potted what proved to be the winner. Bobby Orr scored again early in the third period for an insurance marker, and Derek Sanderson added a fourth goal, an insult to injury, later on in the third. In actuality, it was the fans in the stands who were far more irascible than the players on the ice. There were numerous fights, and the police were kept busy rushing from one level to another to break up the various disturbances. But all that quieted down after Sanderson's goal at 7.22 of the third, which prompted most of the crowd to head for the exits. It was an anticlimactic ending to uh, this rather exciting series at best. Veteran Ab McDonald scored twice for St. Louis in their win before a great crowd of 14,888 at Bloomington. Red Berenson and Larry Keenan had the other St. Louis goals, while Barry Gibbs and Ray Cullen each scored their first of the playoffs for the North Stars. Both of Ab McDonald's goals came on the power play, and Glenn Hall was in goal for the Blues to notch his second win of the series. Jacques Plante, who had won the first two games for St. Louis, was sidelined once again with a pulled hamstring. So that leaves four teams in the running for the 1970 Stanley Cup. The Blackhawks were to take on the Bruins in the Eastern Final... They would get the extra home game while the Blues would meet the Pittsburgh Penguins in the Western Division set with both series to begin on Sunday. The Chicago-Boston game would be played in Chicago and seen nationally during the afternoon on the CBS television network and the Blues and Penguins would meet in St. Louis in the nightcap. Going into the Eastern Final, the Blackhawks felt the key to defeating Boston It's pretty simple you neutralize Bobby Orr and that would seem to make sense to most observers. They did a good job of it during the regular season. The Hawks and Bruins played eight times splitting the results of the games each team winning three games with two of them ending up tied. Or in the eight games, managed only four assists, which is much lower than his regular output against the rest of the NHL. He failed to get a goal in the eight games. So how did Chicago blunt Orr's attacking ability during the regular season? Well, for one thing, they four-checked the Bruins relentlessly. The Hawks, for most of the season, had four aggressive four-checkers in centers Stan Makita, Pitt Martin, Chico Mackey, who also spends a lot of time on right wing, and Lou Angotti, and they acquired another good forechecking center in Brian Campbell in the trade that brought the Hawks Bill White. The plan were always to bother Orr as much as possible before he could wind up for those patented rushes. Another thing that the Hawks did was try and steer Orr away from the lane down his side of the rink which is the right side. They tried would move him into center or even left side seemed to be uh lessen the likelihood of a scoring play developing. Chicago's left wingers who are the Hall brothers and Jerry Pinder and left defenseman Doug Moans and Doug Jarrett would be key to implementing that strategy. The Bruins, meanwhile, feel that Stan Makita is the key to the Chicago offense and stopping him has to be paramount. Now, there are two ways to do that, according to Bruins coach Harry Sinden. Hit Stan hard and often and smother his wingers. The Bruins feel that without anyone open on the wings to whom he can make those pinpoint passes, Makita's effectiveness will be neutralized, at least theoretically. The Bruins also have a big problem with Bobby Hull. Every team has a big problem with Bobby Hull. But they think they can take care of Hull with one of the very best defensive players in the game today. And that is veteran Eddie Westfall. Eddie will be on the ice every time the Golden Jet makes an appearance. And he will be Bobby's shadow literally. If Steady Eddie can shut down Bobby Hull that'll go a long way towards the Bruins reaching the Stanley Cup Finals. Now one area where it seems the Blackhawks have an edge going into the series is between the pipes and goal. Their prized rookie Tony Esposito is this year's Vesna Trophy winner and he's probably going to be the first team all-star as well. Now maybe Bruins star Phil Esposito has some insight into possibly a secret weakness that the Bruins could exploit. Phil says he wishes nothing but the best for his younger brother but in the Stanley Cup playoffs there's only one goal and that's to win no matter what and family loyalties have no room in that kind of a series. So Sunday came around. Both series got underway in uh, Chicago and St. Louis, and both games were pretty fair hockey matches. The afternoon game on CBS saw the Bruins double the Blackhawks 6-3, to three, while the evening affair had St. Louis take out Pittsburgh by a score of 3-1. to one. Now the Blackhawks were shockingly ineffective before a raucous Chicago Stadium crowd that numbered pretty close to 20,000 although the official attendance numbers were the usual 16,666 which happens to be the number that the fire department would approve for Chicago Stadium. Whether they were stale from a longer layoff thanks to dismissing Detroit in four straight games or whether the Bruins were far better prepared that's a subject that will be for debate but one thing was very clear. Boston's goalkeeping in the person of Jerry Cheevers, who must have drawn some great confidence from that performance against the Rangers, was better in Game 1 than what was provided to the Blackhawks by the rookie Tony Esposito. The Bruins gave Tony trouble right from the opening faceoff. The game was only about a minute old when Ken Hodge, who has one of the NHL's heavier shots, plunked one off Esposito's mask and up into the crowd. Tony was understandably stunned and went to the ice like he'd been shot and he lay there for about three minutes before being revived or whatever they want to call it. In any event, he got up, he insisted he was fine and he was going to stay in the game no matter what. Tony later on denied that the blow, which he later described as blank glancing, had any effect on his play. The Bruins had lots of heroes in this one. Chevers as we mentioned was superlative in goal and Bobby Orr played over 33 minutes and set up two goals himself And he was a tower of strength defensively, neutralizing every Chicago attack. Phil Esposito took no mercy on his brother, scoring three times for Boston. The Bruins scored twice in each period, and although the Hawks came out of the gate fast in the first 10 minutes, it was once again, just like against the Rangers, that Cheevers was at his best, and they never seriously threatened the Bruins after that. As expected, The Bruins used Eddie Westfall to shadow Bobby Hull, and while the strategy seemed to be effective, the Blackhawks had an interesting ploy of their own to try and frustrate Westfall they put big lanky Eric Nestorenko a pretty fair defensive player himself on the right wing on Hull's line and when Westfall attempted to check Hull they had Nestorenko cut across from his wing over to the left side where Hull would be and take Westfall out of the play it seems that referee John Ashley didn't see anything wrong with this bit of interference being run by Nestor and Even though Westfall rarely touches the puck when he's checking hull, Nestor Inko is allowed to get away with checking Westfall. In St. Louis, they had a crowd of 16,489, and they saw the Blues use a six-minute flurry in the second period to sink the Penguins. Gary Sabrin, Phil Goyette and Red Berenson were the marksmen for the home side and that flurry took Pittsburgh right out of what had been a scoreless game. Ken Schinkel notched one for the Penguins in the third period but that was as close as the Pittsburgh would get. Both goalies in this game Les Binkley of Pittsburgh and the Blues Glenn Hall were solid throughout. So now the series will go Tuesday night, when game two will be played, and we'll have those results in next week's show. Aside from the Stanley Cup playoff games, there was a lot of other hockey news and some world news to talk about this week as well. The Detroit Red Wings announced their new coach, and as wildly predicted and expected, he turns out to be former Cornell University hockey coach Ned Harkness. Ned takes over the Red Wings bench from Sid Abel who left the post to concentrate on his general manager duties. It was always Abel's plan to leave the coaching position after he was rushed into the breach last fall when the incumbent Bill Gadsby was dismissed only three games into the season. What's really interesting about all this is that although Abel is the general manager, it seems to me that there's an undercurrent of other forces being at work in the Red Wings organization. Gadsby's firing just three games into the season was not Abel's idea. He was Sid's choice as coach, but it was allegedly owner Bruce Norris who gave Abel the orders to sack Gadsby and the reasons were never made very clear. Abel publicly agreed with the move but it's believed he was just following Norris's orders and if you know how Bruce Norris operates you know that his employees accede to his every whim or such said employees would be looking for gainful employment elsewhere. Now it seems that Jim Bishop a lacrosse guru from Oshawa Ontario seems to now have Norris's ear. He was hired to run the Olympia Arena basically a fancy arena manager but apparently Bishop's providing hockey suggestions to Norris and the big man is listening. Harkness is an old Ontario lacrosse guy as well and he's known Bishop very well for many years so Harkness is Bishop's guy for sure. Abel, when asked about the possibility of Harkness moving behind the bench several weeks ago, denied any knowledge of any such idea and emphasized that no coach would be hired without the approval of the general manager, and he is the general manager. He suggested that Ned Harkness was not on his list of candidates. And yet now here we are, Ned Harkness officially joining the Detroit Red Wings as their head coach. Harkness is going to be paid $50,000 to coach the Red Wings. And that's a sum that's higher than most of the NHL's coaches and what they'll make this season. By comparison, Punch Imlach in his final season coaching Toronto where he'd been for 11 years and doubling as general manager made $38,000. It's widely understood that Bishop is the man who engineered the contract. As for the length of Ned's uh deal with the Red Wings, that wasn't stipulated. And guess what? There's not even a formal contract. It's a handshake deal, unwritten, but apparently Bruce Norris's word is as good as anything. At least that's what Ned Harkness thinks. Now we get to Philadelphia... Uh, where Flyers coach Vic Stasiuk finally decided to talk about the Philadelphia epic collapse in the final weeks of the season. He let Jack Chevalier of the Philadelphia Inquirer in on some decisions he'd made in preparation for the 70-71 season. Stasiuk said that one of the things that happened to the Flyers during the home stretch when they lost six in a row is that nobody on the team believed it could happen. They didn't think it could happen on the East Coast, and they didn't think it could happen on the West Coast. Stasiak, uncharacteristically for the way he's uh, dealt with the press all season, was very candid here, and he said, I really think you have to blame it on the rookie coach. Who is him? Vic Stasiak. Vic said, I failed to recognize that it could happen. I guess I was just too relaxed about making the playoffs, and I never believed we would miss Stasiak went on to say, I don't know if that's a good excuse or not, but that's the one I'm using. Stasiak said he's made some other decisions on how the Flyers team will evolve over the offseason. He says that the French line, which included André Lacroix, and Guy Gendron and Simon Nolay is too small and too soft to continue as an effective scoring unit in the NHL. Uh, he said that the Flyers are not a clutch team and they need an experienced winner on this team, such as Minnesota obtained when they got goalie Gump Worsley to help them ease the pressure. He thinks the Flyers need a solid scoring left winger, and he hinted that Bobby Clark would be the guy to center Gendron and Nole on the number one line next season. Clark did fill in on the line from time to time this year and Stasiak said something happened when those guys got together. There was definitely something there. Stasiak did another thing. He called Bernie Perrant an excellent goaltender but he's not a clutch goaltender like Chicago's Tony Esposito who kept coming up with the big saves. Well general manager Keith Allen admits the Flyers have too many specialists on their team and not enough scorers But he was quick to add that Bernie Perrant won't be traded for a scoring forward. We'll have to stay tuned in Philadelphia and see what happens as the offseason evolves. Here's a crazy story. A Buffalo New York man has obtained a court order directing the city and its new NHL franchise to show why it should not be enjoined from going ahead with the expansion of Memorial Auditorium. James J. Riley, who's a Buffalo insurance broker, obtained the order from Judge James Moore of the New York State Supreme Court and it's returnable next week. In his action... Riley charged that the 20-year contract signed by the City of Buffalo and the Niagara Frontier Hockey Corporation on April 2nd contained variations from an original draft lease to the substantial benefit and gain of the hockey corporation. His argument is that the expansion will cost $10 million while the cost of building a completely new arena could have been for less than $7 million. Work on the expansion for the arena has already begun. Jim Coleman of the Toronto Telegram was at his best this week, and he had lots to talk about in a couple of different columns. Uh, he talked about uh, a story in a New York newspaper. And while he didn't name the reporter, it was Stan Fischler, he said that the story's revelation that referee Bill Chadwick lost an eye before he became a referee uh, caused a lot of laughter around the NHL. He said it caused the laughter because this was no new revelation. Everyone in the hockey world was aware that Chadwick lost an eye when he was a player with the New York Rovers of the Old Eastern League. The newspaper and radio reporters, according to Coleman, never mentioned Chadwick's handicap publicly because they didn't want to have him heckled by those vicious New York hockey fans. And as a matter of fact, the loss of the eye wasn't even a handicap in Chadwick's case. Bill Chadwick is a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame and he was a magnificently efficient NHL referee. In another column Coleman suggested that reports of Canadian cities vanishing from the NHL are not outlandish. This has to do with some changes to the Canadian tax code which would make it very difficult for Canadian teams to operate abroad. Jim said that the answer is a Canadian hockey league patterned after the Canadian football league. The difference between the CFL and the CHL, as it would be called, would be that the best players in the world are all Canadian and not American – And if the government got involved with tax breaks and things like that, it might be more financially attractive for our players to remain north of the border instead of playing in the National Hockey League in the States. And the Stanley Cup was technically a gift to Canada, so we really own it anyway, don't we? If you think about this, it's really quite an interesting concept. Coleman suggested that... uh, There could be several uh, cities to consider for Canadian Hockey League. You could have Vancouver, Winnipeg, Calgary and Edmonton in the West for starters. You could even come up with Victoria, Regina or Saskatoon. Victoria has a population of 175,000 but there's a great hockey tradition in Regina and and Saskatoon and they would probably fill their rinks. As in the East... You'd start with Montreal, Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, and Quebec City. They'd require a new larger rink in Hamilton, but we hear that there are plans for such a building. And there's a lot of time to build one before the U.S. takes over the NHL. But mark my words, says Jim Coleman, there will be no NHL teams in Canada in a very few short years. We have one more story to talk about this week and it had little to do with hockey other than it captivated probably every hockey fan's mind along with everyone else on the planet. Uh, Given the times we're living in now in the year 2020, I thought I would show you that uh, there were diversions and distractions from sports 50 years ago and stories that were bigger than the games that were being played. As this week dawned, uh, Apollo 13 was on its way to a rendezvous with the surface of the moon. The craft, which carried three astronauts, had experienced a picture-perfect liftoff and was serenely cruising its way to the Earth's closest neighbor when the unthinkable happened and an often misquoted message was delivered to mission control in Houston in a remarkably calm fashion. 13 we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like it there, uh stir up your cryo tanks. In addition, I have a shaft and trunnion for a look at the Comet Bennett if you need it. Okay, stand by. Okay, Houston, Uh, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Yes, Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Okay, stand by, 13, we're looking at it. And we had a pretty large bang associated with the uh, caution and warning there. And as I recall, BB was the one that had a amp spike on it uh, once before. In the interim, uh, we're starting to uh, go ahead and button up the tunnel again. Like everyone else at the time on the planet Earth, when it was announced that the moon landing was off and the lives of the astronauts were in grave danger. I was on pins and needles for the next few days as the NASA support folks scrambled to come up with solutions to the myriad of problems that had suddenly endangered the mission and the crew. Finally on Friday, after some anxious moments on re-entry when radio contact was lost, and that's normal, uh, the crippled spaceship splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, almost exactly where the route had been plotted by NASA's scientists. Contact with the Earth happened at 11.06 Eastern Standard Time in the morning, about only four miles from the aircraft carrier Iwo Jima, which was sent into the area to recover the astronauts. So for a few days, hockey took a backseat in my mind, just like it is here in 2020. And when the three spacemen were pronounced well and fit, We didn't mind not thinking about hockey a bit. I mind about not thinking about hockey now. And I'm glad I've got this 50 years ago hockey podcast to keep us going. But let's all hope that this situation resolves itself sooner rather than later. And we can get back to whatever the new normal would be as soon as possible. And that, boys and girls, is our show this week. And what have we learned this time around? Well, we learned that the Bruins and Blackhawks are going to meet in the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs Eastern Final. And most people feel that this series is actually the real Stanley Cup Final. Uh, we found out who the new Detroit Red Wings coach is and possibly we got some insight on how this franchise is going to be run in the immediate future in 1970 and we learned about a new story that dominated the landscape and transcended the world of sports but it had a happy ending that was always endowed until the final moments some of the stories we're working on next week we're going to cover the rest of that boston and chicago playoff series it looks like it's a pretty even matchup would it turn out that way wonder who'll be successful actually we'll get an answer pretty quickly we'll also answer the question do the penguins have even a ghost of a chance against the st louis blues and as more teams are eliminated from further play in the uh, postseason, the off-season hockey news and rumors start to ramp up and we'll be having a lot of information coming out from there. Please join us next week for another 50-year trip back to 1970. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole and we can't thank him enough for all his hard work. He's what makes us podcast tick. Uh, Our intro music comes from the very popular Juno-nominated... Toronto indie rock group The Rural Alberta Advantage And if you ever get a chance To see them perform live It's well worth the price Of a ticket and then some Other musical pieces And sound effects Are put in by Andy Cole And our research comes From files from The Toronto Star Toronto Globe and Mail And of course The many publications found At newspapers.com Don't forget to give a listen To the Let's Write a Song podcast Hosted by Andy Cole Each week Andy And a special guest engage in great conversation and also write a song which they perform at the end of each show if you do a search for the let's write a song podcast you'll also be taken to an address where all the songs that were produced in Season 1 can be heard and downloaded. Give it a listen. You can find us on Twitter at hockey 50 years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site at Hockey50YearsAgo.com where we have news and information about the podcast. You can get the podcast through your favorite apps and again on Spotify as well. Thank you again to everyone who tunes into our show. We hope we're providing a welcome diversion to all the nastiness that's going on in the world this time. And on that note, we'll see you next time.